Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. Our guest for this month's episode is Greg Broughton, the Academy Manager of Buda Glimt. Buda is a town of just 50,000 people in northern Norway, but their football club is making a big noise at home and abroad. Last year, they won the Norwegian Championship for the first time in their history. And last week, they beat Italian giants Roma 6-1 in the Europa Conference League. Greg told Simon Austin exactly how the club are managing to make such an impact with youth at the heart of everything they do. Over to Simon. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Greg. Thank you so, so much for having me. Probably a lot of people hadn't heard of uh, Bodo Glimt until last week um, with that amazing win over Roma. Uh, well, what's it been like at the club since then? A little bit surreal. Um, I think we've had a great deal of success over the last 12 months uh, domestically, but to be able to take that onto the international stage, we we were a little bit lucky last year in, in European competition last year, we got to play Milan, but it was only over one leg. And we gave them a really good game in the San Siro, lost 3-2, should have, could have had a goal in the last five or 10 minutes to, to equalise. So I think um, we do have high expectations and we do set high expectations. But I think uh, the performance and the whole, uh, the whole atmosphere on the evening here, here to have an absolutely packed stadium was unbelievable. Was it a surprise for people at the club to get a result like that? I think the, the focus on the club at the club is always on performance rather than results. It's the manager's mantra. Uh, we have a really, really good mental coach, Björn Mansvak, uh, a former fighter pilot who works with the first team and across the club, actually, not just with the first team. So he is always really, really big on treating no game any different to any other game. So I think the level of performance gave us a chance. But I think the, the pitch, the weather on the evening, uh, Roma's choice not to maybe put their strongest 11 out to start or increase the opportunity of us getting a, a result. But I don't think anybody could have expected us to beat one of the biggest clubs in Europe 6-1. I think nobody would have predicted that before the game. Yeah, and, and for people who don't know more about the club, could, could you just mm. give a bit of an idea? Because it's a small club, isn't it? It is a small club. I, I was really lucky, actually, because... Before I started here, I, I got three months to do a really deep dive into the club, the history of the club, the culture of the club. And I started off with conversations. There's a, there's a great group of people who, uh, a lot of them were the ex-players that won the cup in 75, who sit around and have coffee together every morning. So uh, with them, the leader, the, the players, the parents. So I got to do that piece of work before I came in here to Buda Glimton. Some of the things you wouldn't be aware of if you're not from Norway is that up, up till the early 1970s, the, the North Norwegian clubs weren't allowed to participate in the national football competition. In fact, North Norwegians were, were looked down on. There were signs in boarding houses in Oslo saying no North Norwegians, the same as there were in London uh, with discrimination against other nationalities at that stage. So Budaglimp were one of the first clubs, North Norwegian clubs, to be allowed into national competition. Uh, a few years later, they won the cup in 75. And because of that, they really became the culture bearers for the north of Norway. And then they had mixed success over coming years, won the cup again in the early 2000s, but had had an up-down existence, uh, bouncing between the top league and, and, and the second tier in Norwegian football and sometimes even dropping beneath that level. But I think the club put together a really, really good strategic plan in 2012. 
And that built the foundations that the current success is having on. The current success is purely down to the players and the coaching staff around the first team, as with any club. But the, the, the foundations were put in place for over 10 years or almost 10 years at the club, uh, which gave us a really good board to take off from. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. What, what were those foundations? It was a, a very, very clear vision and a very, very clear strategy on how to achieve that vision based upon a focus on North Norwegian talent, focused on becoming a stable elite Syrian club and building a financial base in order to do that. And therefore, the club and my predecessor here at Buda Glimt, a, a real forward-thinking man uh, who's driven or been part of driving uh, Norwegian football, a guy called Oivan Iverson, who went into top football, uh, which is the equivalent of the Premier League P scheme, and drove that forward from 2016 onwards. And what you're seeing now, not just a Buddha glimp, but across Norwegian football in terms of some of the success and some of the players now playing in the Premier League, the Bundesliga, Norway's rise as a national team, is a lot based due to the work that has gone on behind the scenes uh, with academies and, and youth development. And Buddha Klimt have, have also been the recipients of, of, of that hard work. Yeah, interesting. And on Training Ground Guru, we love clubs that are innovative and punch mm. above their weight. Um, we've had, you know, clubs like AZ Altmar we featured and Bodo Glimt are definitely like that. Um, and it was interesting that you mentioned, is it Bjorn Mansirk? Um, he sounds very, very interesting. Um, does he have an impact with what you do in the academy? Yeah, he does. Uh, we've actually just spent a lot of work this year um, looking at the framework of our character development programme, our mental development programme. And he sat in on all of those meetings um, and guided us with that and checks us in terms of the language we're using in the room and, and with the players. But uh, a, a really, really good man, a down-to-earth man, uh, not coming from a football background, coming in from the outside and, and observing. And it started with some one-to-one -one work he did with one of our academy graduates, the, the cap, one of the captains of the team at the moment. We have two captains, but one of them, a guy called Ulrich Soldness, who was a really, really good player, but was really struggling with, just had fallen out of love with football was feeling stressed before games and, and was even considering just stopping playing because he'd fallen out of love with it. And Hovar Sakariasen, who's one of the, one of the uh, leaders within the club here, uh, had spoken to Bjorn and asked him just to come in and have conversations with Ulrich. And that, that started the ball rolling. And Bjorn's now a, an integral part of, of, of what we do here at Budaglimt. And so, I mean, we talk about pressure in football. He was actually a fighter pilot in Afghanistan then, is that right? Yeah, and a trainer of fighter pilots as well, and talks consistently about being in the moment, about uh, not trying to look at uh, control the controllables, all of these phrases you'll have heard used about in football before. But I think the, the big difference is I've been at clubs where those words and those slogans are used constantly, but they're nothing more than words. People don't walk the walk. And it's hard to do that in football because there is constant pressure. But our first team are absolutely spot on at doing that. That's probably been, I would say, the biggest competitive advantage we have had has been that ability to work and be in the present. Um, and our first team coach, Chetel Knudsen, is an absolute master at it. He refuses to look past the next game, the next training session, and is absolutely spot on with it. And it's not just an empty soundbite that he gives after, after the game. He absolutely lives that mantra every day. It's very easy to say live in the moment, isn't it, really? I guess we all hear that and try and do it, but it's harder than it sounds, isn't it? Really? It's, it's really, really hard. Um, I think 
it, it's a vital part of youth development. And I'll come back to that if I can do in a second. But I, I don't know if you've seen a series recently, Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've seen, seen it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I've really, really enjoyed that. And there's a, a quote where he talks about live, living in the moment being a gift. And that's why it's called the present, which is a bit of a cheesy quote. But I, th- I think when we, when we relate that back to youth development, it's to try and get our young players at the club to understand that, that success is a journey. It, it's not an outcome. It's about a commitment to that constant upward curve. And it's about trying to give young players an understanding of purpose. What's their purpose, which is unique to them. I can't tell them what their purpose is. They have to discover that themselves. We can guide them. But I think it's, uh, it, it's about allowing them to form and own their own individual identity, which is not the footballer or the Buddha glimpse player. It's them as a person and what's their purpose, what they want to achieve from life. Does the club try and be uh, different in other ways because it doesn't have the resources of some of the other clubs in Norway, let alone in Europe? Um, what, what are some of those other ways? Well, I, I think if I, if I give you two examples, uh, one that's relevant to, to the work I do in the academy and one that's a bigger piece of work that's also related to the academy but that's related to the whole club. Um, but the whole club made a, a commitment to the sustainable goals, the 19 sustainable goals, three years ago. If, if you look on the back of our shirts now, the big logo at the top of the back of the shirts is Action Now. And again, a lot of clubs will talk about sustainability and talk about recycling. But the club actually lives, the, lives this day to day. One piece of work we did with the academy players and we started this in 2019, was we sat down with each of the groups of players um, in, in pre-season and talked to them about the 19 goals for sustainability and asked each age group to go away and come back with one goal that they felt was important to them and then one action that they could do to follow up on that goal. So if I give you an example, the boys born in 2004, the under-15s at the time, made a commitment to equality within age groups uh, and ensuring that the elderly are not left isolated. And the boys in that group in pairs every every week for about 10 weeks went and visited various old people's homes throughout the city and just sat down and talked. And this was their idea. This was their initiative. They took ownership of it. And I think to start off with, they were really, really nervous because what do I have in common with uh, an 85-year-old man who's maybe very lonely in a home. His family either can't visit regularly or just doesn't have family to visit. But I think football is, is the great equaliser. And when they found out that most of these guys were, uh, and, and people were just really, really happy to talk football, it became very, very easy. And I think the feedback we had from both the recipients and the participants was, was absolutely impactful in, in the work we do here. And that's obviously gone on and become a big part. So, so we as an academy made a commitment to five of those, of those sustainable goals and the clubs made a, a, a commitment to, to more than that. So that would be kind of one example of, of, of innovative practice. I think the, the other part was the club's commitment to, to playing North Norwegian talent and having some fairly lofty, lofty measures of success within that. I think the measure was, was 35% of, of, of league minutes to come from North Norwegian players. Um, of which a percentage was, was from players who've come all the way through the academy. Um, and to have that identity, especially when the club holds such a strong uh, place within the hearts of the people in North Norway, Norway because of the history we've talked about in, earlier in this conversation, I think is a really big part of, of the club's uh, identity as well. 
Yeah, brilliant. I, I read about those targets, actually. Have you met them? How close are you to them? Funny enough, in my technical director's course that I've just finished now, my, my study, my final dissertation was on uh, Goodhart's Law, which basically is around the, around the uh, suggestion that when a measure becomes a target, it stops becoming an effective measure. So I think what we have to check in is that they're, they're not targets, they are measures, they're, they're, they're points where you can check in on the club's dashboard and see, see whether you're on target for your, uh, for your aims of the club. I, I listened to a really interesting conversation last year between Rasmus Ankerson and the 21st Club where he talked about what's the R rating for your club. And that's asked us to reflect now. And what we've said now is we look at it on a five-year rolling average. So over five years, at any point in time, a little bit, every, everyone's now comfortable with what the rolling average is because it's been the conversation news headlines on the news every day. We know if the R number goes above one, um, then, then as a country, you're heading towards lockdown, et cetera, et cetera, especially in the last 18 months. So what, what's, the, what's the R number for your football club? And f- for us, having those young players with a North Norwegian identity in our first team has definitely been uh, one of the key measures of success. What, why can targets be limiting, do you think? Is it because they're a bit rigid? Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's lots of different reasons for that. But I think, uh, firstly, sometimes targets are used incorrectly. Um, I think sometimes if you measure uh, inputs rather than outputs, they can have a, a negative effect. I think uh, if you use initiatives as a measure, so initiatives have to be there to drive projects, but they're not the measure of success themselves. I think standardization also causes a problem. Um, in, in, in my study, I talked with, it was brilliant conversations, Dave Redden, the ex-performance uh, leader at the FA and at rugby and at UK Sport, uh, Phil, Phil uh, Giles, the, the technical director of Brentford and Omar at 21st Club. And there was some uh, difference when they talked about standardisation because uh, Dave was very clear. He felt that context is everything and you couldn't have a performance measure that, was, that you could just lift and take to your next club or to your next environment. Whereas Phil talked about Brentford's use of the rating and they came away from uh, having promotion to the Premier League as the measure and talked more about their rating, which is uh, expected goals, expected goals conceded and constantly talking about how they can improve that and all of the different things they can do from sports science, coaching, etc. to improve that. But he felt that that rating could be used at any club he worked at, he would take that measure with him. So I think it's having clarity on, on those measures is absolutely vital. And also it's then giving ownership of those measures back to the people uh, you're, you're tasking with implementing them. So as a club, you might set the overall uh, headlines, but then getting the people to, getting your, your, your people to buy into the design of those measures and the ownership of those measures, but also catching them in the moment if, if they're not going right and giving them ownership for doing that. And so does that tie into what you were saying with your young players, that it's about the journey, not the outcome? Similar I think so, yeah, I think so. I think we have to be very careful. I listened to your podcast with Nick Cox, which I thought was brilliant. And Nick, Nick is one of the top practitioners in youth development in the UK. And he talked about being careful about ensuring that if you have the production of first team players as your overall goal, you will fail. Um, I think Tom Vernon at Norshland talks about this absolutely brilliantly. He talks about that if clubs measure it by having first team players, then ultimately you're going to be releasing so many players that, that it becomes damaging to the overall infrastructure and ecosystem of, of, of youth development and football. So I think you have to be careful to have, try to have loftier goals than just putting players into your first team. Of course, that, that's core, a core part of your business. But if you are talking about 
developing a sustainable, really healthy program to develop young people. There has to be bigger targets than that. And that brings us on to how did you end up being at Bodo Glimp? Because you have, you know, very impressive CV, just, just Luton Town Academy Manager, Head of Recruitment, then Norwich. Um, and the players that you've worked with, I guess you'd be wary of saying brought through, um, but, you know, Max Aarons, James Austin, James Madison, Todd Campwell, Jamal Lewis, the list goes on, you know, very impressive. So how did you end up in uh, Norway, North Norway? If I go back to the beginning, I've been really lucky. I've, I've, I've had some great people that I've worked with. Um, my, my first, I spent some time coaching in America when I first finished university. And then my first full-time job in the UK was at Russian and Diamonds. And when I think back then to the brilliant people who, I, who in my first job were, I, I use the word mentor. It wasn't an official mentorship, but just the learning you can pick up from those people every day. Uh, you had Terry Wesley, who's gone on to great success in academy leadership in the UK. You had Steve Spooner as a still a leader now at Birmingham City, a great man with a really, really great principles in life. Uh, Jeff Viterra went on to be the technical director at Real Madrid at Newcastle. I'm trying to think who else. Uh, Jeff Harrop, who's now the loans manager or involved in the loans program at Southampton. Brian Torbert, who used to set really, really high standards. Barry Hunter, who was the first team coach, who's now in charge of first team recruitment at Liverpool. So brilliant people who gave me a really good foundation. So I'm very, very lucky. To, to be exposed to those people that early in my career. Oh, and that was um, all but, at Rushton and Diamonds, was it? Sorry. Yeah, all at Rushton and Diamonds. Oh, wow. so I, 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 yeah, okay. yeah, I joined Rushton and Diamonds when we were in the conference, as it was called at the time, and we kept missing out on promotion. And then that, that year we, we pipped Yeovil and got promoted to the Football League and then lost the playoffs, then got promoted to League One and uh, had some really good young players coming through. So Lee Tomlin uh, was in the first team. Uh, Simeon Jackson was in the first team, David Bell, Andy Burgess, really good young players. And then we, we had to set up the academy from scratch, which Jeff Harrop put the work in. And then I was able to join Jeff Harrop with that. And we had some really good young players then in the academy. So Ben Chilwell was with us in the foundation phase. Ben was actually work playing at my local club, Woburn Lions, where I was a volunteer coach at seven or eight. So Ben came with us to Rushton and Diamonds. And then my, my journey's obviously gone, gone through. I got the opportunity to work at Luton Town, which was my hometown club, the club I grew up supporting as a boy, which was an amazing opportunity for me. And again, surrounded with great people. Uh, very, very grateful. Mick Harford was somebody who really shaped my kind of thoughts on football. Then through Norwich and obviously now to Buda Glimp. So, so we decided as a family, my wife and I, that we really, really wanted to experience life abroad. My wife fancied a trip to Southern Europe. I, I really wanted to come north into Scandinavia. So we had that discussion and I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to talk to a few clubs. And the project that really, really excited me, because some of those clubs were, were on paper, definitely much bigger clubs than Buda Glimt. But the projects and the joined up thinking here at Buda Glimt and the, the strategy and the journey that they were on made me feel that we could, we could do something really, really special here. I would be lying if I could say, three years down the line, we'd be sitting here having won the league, having finished second, now having a chance to be top of the league with seven games to go, having just defeated Roma based on a team with a lot of academy graduates in the team. That would have been beyond, been beyond anyone's wildest dreams. But the infrastructure was in place, as I said. So you never know if, if, if you have good people and you have a good plan, there's no limit to, to how far it can go. It's fair to say then that the academy is a core part of the club and that's something the owners believe in, the manager, you, say, you know, it runs all the way down. It does. They, they heavily invest into the academy. It's consistently been rated 
um, and I know we'll probably come on to ratings further in this conversation, but it's consistently been rated in the top three academies in Norway by the Norwegian Football Association. And the club has an absolute belief in, in, in what an academy can do. But that's not just about players for your first team. It's its impact on, on society. And it's also the club's, I think a club has to have a commitment to its community to work with players in that community and to try and develop them and develop leaders and to make that project sustainable. And, and we have enormous geographic challenges in Buda. The, the county that we sit in, Norland, uh, we're the only professional club in the county. And it takes 12 hours to drive across the county, 12 hours. We're, we're pretty much middle of the county. So six hours north, six hours south, players coming in by boat, by train, by aeroplane. And we have a commitment to, to our partner clubs throughout that county to, to ensure that um, they are sustainable, they can continue to have success. Um, and, and that's one of our, I, I think, one of our commitments to, to the county and the society that we're part of. And it's really, really interesting that the first national league in Norway in, in youth development is at under 14. And in that league, we would traditionally, for every game, have six players coming in, about six players coming in uh, to play in a national game who aren't our players at that stage. There are players in that we've identified with them and work with their partner clubs, but they belong to one of the other clubs outside in the county. And the logistics of that operation is enormous because you've got to get to the ferry port because this boy's boat's coming in. Uh, the boat's delayed. The sea's too rough. Can we get him on a plane? There's a train coming up, which is a five-hour train journey. And then we've got to get a connecting flight because every single away game in that league for us is a flight and sometimes two flights. And I used to get stressed at Norwich about a four-hour bus journey. Or can, we, can we do a four-hour bus journey? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a big challenge for us. Interest about rankings and uh, measures, as you say. Um, I know that a lot of clubs do talk about the character development and producing people who can be leaders in fields outside of football or have an impact on society, as you say. Um, but I, I think the problem is a lot of the time that isn't something that's measured and it's probably not a measure of success for academies. So maybe they don't put the focus on it that they should. Um, but you definitely do, do you, at Bodo Glimt? Yeah, I think it's difficult because it is one of those things that is difficult to measure. Put yeah. players playing minutes in your first team or number of minutes on loan or how many staff do you have employed and what's their, what's their coaching qualifications? They're easy things. They're tick box exercises that anybody can measure. Mm. But I don't think it's just football who, who suffers from this. I think if you look at football and academia, because ultimately both of those fields look after the development of young people. And I think it's that differentiation between uh, training and uh, education. Uh, training being obviously looking at the uh, production, survival, education being the improvement of self. And having a, a definitive way of looking at that is, is very, very difficult. But I think we've talked before, you and I, about looking to see if your young players are happy. Are they fulfilled? Do they want to continue playing football or sport when and if they leave your academy? I, I think things that clubs can do to, to be careful of this or, or to try and prevent uh, bad practice or bad outcomes are make a, make a long-term commitment to the players. Um, at, at Norwich, we used to say when a player came in at under nine, they would be guaranteed being with us till at least under 12. But on reflection, was that enough? At Glimt, when a player comes into the academy, because we don't start uh, with academies in Norway till under 13, but when they come in at under 13, our commitment is there till under 16. But we have a big review in the academy next week. And one of the proposals that's on the table is when a player comes into 13, 
if they commit to coming into our school program at 13, we should really see their journey through till 19. Because if our outcome isn't about getting them into the first team, it's about the commitment to fulfillment of potential. Why stop that at 16 if they're just not doing as well as you hope they would do on the football pitch? If there's a bigger commitment, maybe you have to look uh, further than that. I think you have to have a really good framework for developing character. It's not good enough just to say we're developing character or we've employed a, a sports psychologist. What is your framework for developing character? Um, how are you encouraging your players to give back uh, to society and to develop further leaders? I think all of these things are, are things that clubs have to have serious, serious conversations about. Yeah, the, the club that I've seen that really does that, I think, is uh, Norgeland and, and Right to Dream, who do really celebrate their young people going into other fields, going to college in America. And they do focus a lot on that character development, don't they, as well? Um, so is that a sort of operation that you've looked to? I, I think anyone who's studied Nosherland and studied uh, the work that Tom and his team have put together across Right to Dream, because let's not forget Right to Dream, oh, Nosherland is not Nosherland, only Right to Dream, uh, cannot feel anything but inspired by that mission that they're on. Does that mean we want to copy that at Budaglint? No, because our context is different. Do Are there good ideas and good practice that everybody can learn from in football? My belief is yes. I think they are absolutely the market leaders in that. And I think their, their commitment to, to, to purpose and developing people is absolute and is core to what they do. It's not just a throwaway statement. It, it's absolutely central to everything they do. So if we, as a football industry, are committed to developing people not just footballers there's a lot of learning we can take from them they make that long-term commitment to the players don't they as well I know in Ghana I think it's a six-year commitment so they're exactly. very very careful who they admit into their academy but then they do make that that long-term commitment to them yeah and it's getting that balance right between making sure that your environment isn't too comfortable uh, that players don't feel challenged every single day but also players shouldn't feel fear or shouldn't feel scared because this is absolutely central to what you do, that if players walk onto a football pitch feeling fearful, like our first team had walked onto the football pitch feeling fearful playing Roma, didn't, feeling we, didn't feel we can stand up and go toe-to-toe -to, -toe to you, you've got absolutely no chance of competing, no chance. So if in football, in England, obviously the big years are under 12, under 14, under 16, that's where the, the big churn in players happens. And if that's debilitating performance, especially in years where we know performance is already impaired because players are going through growth spurts, going through huge social change of going to primary school to secondary school or middle school to secondary school. What can we do to reduce that fear factor? Um, and I think that's a big conversation that football has to continue to have. I know it's already started. I know the Premier League does some brilliant work on it. So this isn't a criticism, but I think as an industry, we, we have to do more. I reeled off the names of uh, some of the players you've worked with there at Luton and Norwich. Very, very impressive. D do you think we think enough about the players who didn't make it? So when you look back at your time at those clubs, do, do you have any yeah, thoughts about the churn and the players who went out of the system? Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't have all the answers. Um, I, I constantly challenge myself. There's a, there's a really good photo we have uh, from a Russian and Diamond squad, an under-nine squad, or the end of the under-eight season when they first they got their first uh, registration at Russian and Diamonds with Barry Hunter and Jeff Harrop and this group of young players. And I look back at them, and there's two players in that, in that team that if you think about pure potential, uh, young men, uh, one called Dino, one called Andre, 
And they were by far the, far the two players with the most potential in that team. And for different reasons, they didn't fulfil their potential. What should we have done as a club to help them? One, very much with character development. One, with being more physically robust, which I think would probably be the reasons why they've, they've fallen out of the professional game now. Because when I look back at Ben, ben Chilwell in that photo, I call him the, one of the silver medalists in the group. He, 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 he had potential. He, otherwise, he wouldn't have been invited into the academy. He had high potential. But would he be one of the players that you would say, or would you have said, in, in 10 years' time, that player will be in a squad that is in the European Championships final, would win the Champions League, and would be a top, top Premier League footballer? No, no chance. So what could we have done to give better support to the rest of the group and both during the process and post the process? Because every single one of those people is a young man and a young person. So we should have an absolute commitment to them. And yes, celebrate Ben's success, but yes, also celebrate any success that those other uh, young men have gone on to have in their life and continue to have those that communication and conversations with them and their parents. And we're having a lot of debate over here at the moment about pre-academy. Um, so what ages kids could come in? There was a, a picture of a, a child, I don't know if you saw it, I think four years old, um, who the papers were calling the next Messi. Um, what age do kids come into your academy? Uh, we, we start to work with players at 11 and 12, but they're not our players at that time. So we, we would work with a group of players that's nominated by the clubs in the city between the ages of 11 and 12 but they continue playing for their grassroots football and come in with tra and train with us once or twice a week to complement their learning. And then during the under 12 year, we begin that process of taking players out at under 13. So I think the difficulty at the moment is the system in the UK is possibly too rigid. Should clubs have the ability to work with eight and nine-year-olds in the UK? Absolutely, definitely. There's some brilliant examples of clubs who have first-class top practice with this. Uh, Manchester United being one of those, Chelsea being another of those. Uh, and I'd like to think Norwich and some of the clubs that I, I was involved in also did that really, really well and tried to add to young people's childhood experiences. But the difficulty with the system at the UK is it, it's clubs have no flexibility in terms of how they can work. So if I'm at a club, especially a non-Premier League club, I either have to start working with players at nine or at 16. There's no middle ground. I can't choose to start working with players at 12. The model doesn't allow that. EPPP doesn't allow that. Also, I can't run joint age groups. So I can't take a, say I'm going to take a small group of players at 10 and 11 and have an under 11 group there. And I can't say I only want to participate in some of the games program, but not all of the games program. Yeah. The rules about participation in county football and club football are very strict. And I, I'm probably as guilty as anybody of making that mistake in the past and saying to young players, I remember having a very heated debate with James Justin's father, who sadly passed away last year, about his participation in county football at under 13, under 14. And I absolutely got that wrong on reflection, got that wrong. But at the time, I believed that was right. But the system maybe led me to believe or maybe I didn't have the strength of, of belief to, to question the system at that stage. So... Yeah, I think the system has to be better designed to allow clubs the flexibility, but then allow each club to make their own decision. 
what do you think about that pre-academy system where clubs have the development centres? Because I think, again, there's a lot of discussion about that within the clubs mm. and the Premier League mm. at the moment, and they haven't resolved it, really. No, look, I, I think in a perfect world, grassroots clubs in the UK would have brilliant facilities, educated coaches, and a really good development environment. And I think that's probably the bit that the UK is missing out on compared to other European countries where those facilities and those coaching structures are in place. There's a dramatic lack of funding. AstroTurf stay locked in the evening. You can't get access to them because they feel they'll get vandalised or damaged. So the academies almost take responsibility for, for that lack of funding in society. Also, if we accept that sport in primary schools is underfunded, underdeveloped teachers have a lack of support around them to develop that because one of the observations I think any academy leader will give you is that players are coming in with movement skills that maybe weren't the same as 15 20 30 years ago Uh, players aren't outside playing in the street and climbing trees and doing all of these things anymore they're sat inside playing computer games and there's a fear to let your young your your child go out and play so the, the academy system has almost become the substitute for that and, and serves an enormous purpose to that. So I think it's very easy to beat academies with that stick. Mm. But if you take that development work that academies do away with from seven and eight-year-olds, you just cause a problem further down the line because that infrastructure and that funding isn't there. Should football maybe help with that funding? Should some of the Premier League money go towards that funding? Yes, but I think the government has to do more as well. Yeah, just kind of my own experience of grassroots really with my kids and different bits so it's a bit haphazard isn't it I suppose the pitches um, the coaching cannot be great sometimes and they're doing the wrong things you're getting parents yelling from the sidelines and yeah often I've not thought that is a good um, learning environment really whereas I think probably a lot of academies are very thoughtful and switched on and experienced in these things. And I think if you could get a combination of both of those things, where there was a little bit more flexibility to allow 9, 10 and 11 year olds to be associated to a professional club, and maybe it's even that the season is, is split. So the academies we know have facilities that allow football to go on 365 days a year. So if the academies could take charge of football from October till March, and then the grassroots section run the summer season where facilities are readily available, that might be a solution. But we, we have that challenge here in Buda as well. We know that the, there's a strong correlation between players coming in and having potential for success at 12 and 13 and the quality of their coaching environment from 6 to 12. So if they've got lucky and been in a coaching environment with either a really dedicated trainer, maybe an ex-player, they have come in with a much stronger foundation. Uh, our boys born in 2004, we lost a, a really top player born in 2004 to Nosherland, ironically, a club we've talked about in this conversation, Andreas Schelder, uh, who's playing and featuring really heavily in, in, in Nosherland's first team in the Danish Premier League. He's made his, dem- his debut for Norway's under-21s. Uh, uh, his, co- his father is a brilliant man, young Tommy, and, and led a brilliant coaching environment with, with Tom Sulhag, another dad in the team, who were both ex-footballers at a really good level, both fully committed to the development process and set that up. So they almost had a pre-academy at a grassroots level. Mm. But that is by chance. Your son might have been in that team or not been in that team. There's no design behind that. So I think the UK has to have that bigger conversation about 
how can it support grassroots development? Because the FA is trying to work with one hand, maybe even two hands tied behind its back. So your young players are playing grassroots up until they come with you at 12. Is that right? That You don't have development centres or anything like that? No, like I say, we in the academy, we run something called uh, Big Grouper, which is uh, translated the city group, where the, the, the seven or eight clubs in the city nominate players in to work with us uh, twice a week, but they're not our players. It would be similar to a pre-academy in the UK. Uh, there is no games programme for that group. And then a couple of times a year, we try and bring in 11 and 12 yards from further afield across the whole county. But those clubs, again, nominate those players into us. So the system is very, very different. It, it can't really be compared to, to that in the UK. Right. So you don't have that same sort of arms race with clubs competing for the best youngsters? We don't. There is that to some extent in Oslo. You have two, three mega clubs in Oslo on a Norwegian scale. Starbeck, who are really the, the, the drivers of, of youth development in Norway, do a fantastic program. Valoranga, the, the big club in Oslo, probably the most underperforming club at first team level, but with huge development uh, potential and have now made a real commitment to youth development. Uh, and Lillestrøm, just on the outside, who have Tony Ordin as a really top academy leader driving them. But up here in the north of Norway, it's probably 12 to 15 hours by car to Tromsø north, which is our neighbours to the north, and 15 hours by car to Rosenborg, the neighbours in the south. So no, we, we don't have that competition for players so much. Um, so we, we, it's a, it, it can't be compared. Right. And is that actually an advantage because you can be a little bit more relaxed and longer term with, with what you do? It is an advantage, but also I think it can be a disadvantage that you can become complacent. So we still have to have a top talent identification programme in place. We still have to have a commitment to work with those players from outside the city because for our coaches, it's much, much easier uh, to work with players from here in the city. They don't have to do any extra, extra work. But we have three full-time coaches in our 13s to 15s program. Uh, all have Thomas and Eric, who are all top practitioners. And a lot of their work is just the pure logistics of getting those players in for the national games program. So we have to have a commitment to, to doing that. But we also have to have a commitment to ensuring we know who the players are outside. Uh, one thing I should add, actually, is in that 14s national league, you are only allowed to use players from your allocated county. So even if there was a top 13-year-old that, that Starbeck wanted to use, they're not allowed to, the rules don't allow them to. At under 15, it becomes more of an open uh, field. But there's still a gentleman's agreement between clubs in Norway that when they're in an academy system, we don't take from each other. That, that movement between clubs doesn't exist in Norway. Um, and another thing we talk about a lot, as I'm sure you're aware, is that transition from the academy to the first team and the debate about whether the under-23s is the best forum for that. So what's that like in Norway? Do you, do you have the equivalent of that Premier League 2 under-23s league? Yeah, the simple answer is no, we don't. Uh, we have a under-18 competition. that is about to become an under-17 competition. And then beyond that, our second team, Budaglim 2, participate in the third division, the third tier of Norwegian football, which is regional. But it's a men's league. Um, there are in our division, there's 14 clubs, four of which are second teams and the other 10 are men's first teams. So the huge benefits of the system are your, your players are getting exposed to senior football every week and there's relegation and promotion. So it's very real. So we have our final game of the season on Saturday this weekend because we run a summer season in Norway and we are one place and one point outside the relegation. 
and we play away at the club, a men's team who are one place beneath us. So it really is a winner takes all all game. So our players and our coaching staff have to prepare this week for what that looks like. The disadvantage of the programme is that sometimes you are forced to pick a team that is relevant to that competition. You have to ask, can they survive in that particular game? But also there's a complaint from the second teams that they never quite know the team you're going to face because some of our home games, we have first team players dropping into that second team environment. So depending whether you're home and away, and this season has been particularly special because of COVID killing the first half of the year in football in Norway. It's a one round series of games. You only play 13 matches this year, either home or away. Because, of, because we weren't able to start football till June. So, so this year, if you've got uh, an away game against a second team, you knew it was going to be a much, much harder game. So the fixture programme really dictated your first team's success this year. So there are, there are downfalls to the, to the programme as well. If you were in England again, would you just try and be creative, do you think, at that, that age group? So using loans, things like that, a bit of first team? Um... Yeah, I think it's really, really difficult. The ideal system would be to allow some first-team football opportunities, which obviously the Papa John's Trophy does do in the UK now. But the UK's football pyramid is so special and so sacrosanct that I don't think we should talk about dropping B-teams into that pyramid. We have to be creative inventing other ways of doing that. As a Luton supporter, I'm probably as, uh, call it naive, call it optimistic, to think that Luton can regain their their rightful position at the top flight of British football as they had in the 80s and I would be devastated if we were playing against Tottenham or Chelsea's B team because I think we should be playing against Tottenham or Chelsea's A team even though I realise that football is different to, to when I was growing up but but yeah I, I don't think that's the answer in, in the UK I think we have to be more creative in coming up with solutions. And I know something we've spoken about quite a bit before is um how you rank academies and it's quite interesting mm. the contrast in Norway and um, because I remember you said, I think there's 10 kind of measures of success and mm. it's a lot more transparent in um, making that information public, which we don't do in England. Yeah, I think the, the measures of success aren't dramatically different to those involved in EPPP. Uh, the headlines are the same, facilities, staffing structure, games programme, productivity, etc. But I think there is that absolute transparency at the end of it of what your academy has been graded on. The feedback and the in-depth stuff is kept private to each club, obviously. But the headlines, and there's a, a, a top Norwegian top football re- release a report which has two pages on each club with the exact scores you've got in each domain. So that I think clubs can, can look and see what they're good at and what they're not so good at. But also parents can, can make that informed choice when they look at that as well. Um, there's no embarrassment of that um, because if we're all com- committed to to improvement and excellence why should there be embarrassment to that yeah I'm not quite sure why we don't do that in England really um because we as you know we've done our own productivity rankings um which, which takes a lot of work um mm. I suppose ideally you'd wouldn't want to do that but um it, it's not available anywhere else so. no look, I I the, the Premier League have done absolutely brilliantly and the and, and Jed Roddy and the impl- implementation of EPPP is absolutely one of the driving factors between the nas- behind the national team's success over the last three to four years. So it's very easy to beat them with a stick, but it would be very interesting to now say at what stage, we, we know Norway isn't unique in that, we know that those ratings are available in Denmark, France, Germany, other countries. 
even if the whole report isn't available. Um, the productivity rating in, in Norway is available at any time. I can click on a, on a program that's actually driven by 21st Club in London to see the productivity scoring and, and the players that are generating that scoring for any club. I, can't, I can see Buddha Glimpse, but I can also see any clubs because why, why would that be private? I'm not sure. Yeah, and I know you completed your uh, FA Technical Director's uh, qualification recently. So, yeah, how was that? And is that something you're looking to move into in the future? The course itself was excellent. Uh, I've been very lucky that a few years earlier I got to do my pro license. And obviously this is the equivalent of the pro license, but for talent identification. And it was a brilliant group of people that I could learn from, not just the tutors, but my fellow colleagues on, on the course. And three or four of them have gone on to get a full-time sporting director, technical director's role since starting that course. The course started at a really, really high level. I think there was really impactful presentations. One thing that had a really tangible benefit to, to us here at Buddha Glimpse was we had a presentation from, from a guy called Kirk Vallis. I'm not sure if you've come across yeah, Kirk. Yeah, yeah, from, is uh, it from Facebook or... Yeah? Uh, no, from Google, yeah. Google, so he's, so he's right. head, of creati- yeah. head of creativity at Google. Yeah. In February 2020 at St. George's Park, he talked about creating psychological safety within your team. And I wrote down some notes from that, not knowing what was about to hit the world a, a few weeks later. So when it came back and Norway went into complete shutdown a couple of weeks before the UK, football completely shut down. And the board here at Buddha Glimpse around Easter 2020 had discussed the furlough program. Most clubs in Norway furloughed their staff and a lot of clubs in Norway also furloughed their players. Some clubs in Norway furloughed some players, you could call it the less valuable ones, and protected those on bigger contracts because they knew by furloughing them there was a, an escape clause that might allow them to come out of their contract. So we had a, a big board meeting here. And before that meeting, I met with uh, one of the actual uh, real culture bearers here at Buddha Glimt, a guy called Urian Berg, who's from the legendary Berg dynasty. His dad's one of the greatest players in Norwegian history. His son, Patrick, is one of the stars of the first team at the moment. And Urian and I, along with the two club captains, sat down and discussed protecting psychological safety across, across the whole club. I showed them Kirk's presentation, went through it with them. And we presented to the board to say we believed that the club shouldn't furlough anybody across the whole board. We had to protect the psychological safety of everybody at work in an unknown world. Nobody knew when the world would reopen, never mind football. And so we agreed. We went to the ball with a suggestion to say, if everybody agreed to take a 20% pay cut uh, over the rest of the year, would they do that on the uh, condition that if we achieved our sporting aims of the season, we'd get that back double? And the board debated it and luckily backed it. And I think that was a huge piece of work, not just for the culture of the club, but Every other club except one in Norway stopped, shut down, stopped training. We kept training all the way through. And when we hit the beginning of the season, right at the end of May 2020, the first five or six games, we were literally blowing teams off the field because we trained. They'd only come back to train three weeks before. We'd had a four-month pre-season. Our guys were absolutely on it. And it gave us the momentum, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons behind the success last year. So in terms of tangible benefits from that course, that would certainly be something I, I hopefully brought back to Buddha Glimt. Yeah, and that would be a role you would uh, be interested in in the future. Yeah, I think so now. I think I've, I've, I've managed, I've been very lucky to have over 20 years working in some fantastic academies, um, both in the UK and now here in Norway, uh, work with some brilliant people. And I think now I would be ready that I could take that leadership role, that, that strategic leadership role into a club 
to have a look at the medium to long-term success of what that club's doing. So I think that's definitely a, a challenge that I would like to take on in the future, for sure. Just a final question. Um, if and when you do leave Norway, um, what would be the main lessons you, you would take into another job? Yeah, I think um, the need for flexibility with working with players in the foundation phase, something we've talked about in this conversation, the need to expose players at 17, 18 upwards to senior football earlier, they would be the two strategic things. But the one thing I think that my own personal lesson, and I think the lesson the club has taught me, is that ability to be more in the moment, be more present. I think something I'm really, really good at is being organised and being structural and looking at the long-term picture. But I realise that if you're going to do that, and there is a need for that in a club, you have to surround yourself by people who can be absolutely in the present and the now. And there has to be that piece of work and that framework to allow young players to, to do that as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Greg. Thanks, Simon. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. Just a final announcement. Um, if you enjoyed the interview with Greg Broughton, you'll probably enjoy his presentation at the Youth Development Webinar on November 30th. Greg and a couple of others like Per Merdersacker, who's the head of Arsenal's Academy, and Nick Cox, who's the head of Manchester United's Academy, will be speaking at that event. And we have also a couple of other speakers. And I highly recommend um, you go check that out if you like this episode. If you want more information on that youth development webinar, which is on November 30th, you can go onto the website, uh, the Training Ground Guru website, or you can go on to the Training Ground Guru Twitter account at ground underscore guru. And in both places, we'll be you know, updating and giving lots of information with more details about the event. Um, so if you're in interested in that, you know, buy tickets before they run out. And if not, uh, we'll see you next month with another guest on this podcast. Thanks a lot for listening.